My name is William. It's my privilege to serve as a pastor here of the Mission Cincinnati. And if you are new with us, welcome. We have been taking time during the season of Lent to journey through a special series on the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Uh, What is it that God wants to form in us through the Holy Spirit to look like Jesus in the world for God's glory and for our world's good. And as things would happen, this Sunday I was already scheduled to preach on patience before we all got locked into our homes and faced with an uncertain amount of time in which we have to wait. And so I am excited to draw on my extensive seminary education on how to preach in the midst of a pandemic, which I took many, many classes on, which I'm sure you did as well. Just kidding. No training on this. So we're all novices in this. So hopefully we can come together in God's presence of the humble heart as we wait for what it is that Jesus wants to say to us. When well, a stand-up comedy routine a couple years ago, comedian Brian Regan reflected, I love Pop-Tarts, but they're insulting. They have directions on the box. Believe it or not, there are actually two sets of instructions on the Pop-Tart box, one for toasters and one for microwaves. And as Regan's going through this routine, he wonders aloud, Why are there microwave instructions? I mean, how long does it take to toast a Pop-Tart? A minute and a half on the long side? There are people that don't have that kind of time. I swear, it says microwave on high for three seconds. I can't do anything in three seconds. Wake up, ding, 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 scarf it down. Ah, it's hot, leave. Listen, Regan says, if you need to flash fry your Pop-Tarts in three seconds before you rush out the door, you might want to loosen up your schedule. Regan's routine is intentionally ridiculous, but the central question that he poses is actually pretty important, I think, for our self-reflection. It takes a minute and a half to toast a Pop-Tart. There are people who don't have that kind of time, Regan asks. Yes, I would answer. Actually, there are. And if I'm honest, all too often, I am one of those people. This morning, I'm supposed to talk about patience, and I am one of the least patient people that I know. I'm an Enneagram 3 with a 2 wing, which means that it is my life's passion to be the best in the world at helping you. There was a meme I saw this week showing the different Enneagram-type responses to the coronavirus, and the Enneagram 3 was supposedly trying to impress people with how unafraid you are about the virus, while at the same time making sure you're doing all the right things to protect people. And let me tell you, that sort of work and that sort of mental space is exhausting. It is not the sort of mindset that leads to a balanced schedule or a great willingness to patiently wait for good things to happen for projects to be completed, or for God to finally show up and do whatever it is I think that God has promised to do. We're supposed to be productive, not lazy, right? Proactive, not waiting around for stuff to just happen to us. And so for followers of Jesus, living in a world that doesn't see any value in the fruit of the spirit of patience, it can be natural to wonder, why is it that God wants to form this in us? What would God's patience look like if the Holy Spirit brought it to maturity within our hearts? And why does it matter to the world that this fruit of the Spirit be formed in us? Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit of the living God, we desperately need Jesus this morning. In our hearts, in our lives, and in our world. 
for wisdom, for peace, for assurance that everything is not truly falling apart. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would minister to your people, minister to us, your church today, Lord. Speak to our hearts the words that you know we need to hear, that we might be set free and empowered to be the people you want us to be in the world around us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's passage from John 15 comes at the end of what is known as the Upper Room Discourse, which takes place the night before Jesus' crucifixion. The Upper Room Discourse begins with Jesus washing his disciples' feet before the Last Supper and ends as Jesus journeys with his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. In these verses, Jesus shares final instructions and encouragement to his closest followers before he leaves them. And in these five verses, Jesus offers one specific invitation and command three times. That command is simple. Remain. Remain is translated from the Greek menato, which is also translated often as abide. It also means to stay, to await, to continue, to endure. Americans, and perhaps especially millennial Americans like myself, are so often motivated by a desire to change the world for Jesus. All of us want to be activated by our faith, for our pursuit of Jesus to make us more impactful in the world. And certainly, Jesus does care about the fruitfulness of our lives. The reason, according to this passage, why Jesus wants us to remain in him is precisely so that our lives will bear much fruit. But Jesus doesn't make the fruit-bearing the first action. He doesn't say, okay, all you followers, thanks so much for believing in me. Now go out and do a lot of fruitful things for me. No. Jesus invites his followers to wait, to remain, to abide. To abide in him is the first and most important action, the primary spiritual posture of following Christ. Indeed, we see that according to Jesus, the starting place of discipleship is remaining in him. It's interesting timing to preach a sermon on patience in the midst of a global pandemic and national shutdown. Essentially, all of us right now are being asked and advised to sit tight and wait, to remain alone and oftentimes indoors. And this is incredibly challenging For some of us, jobs and sustainable income hangs in the balance. For others of us, elderly family members are isolated. For others, we're having to shift our schedules around new needs for childcare in the aftermath of school closures that we weren't expecting. All of us face uncertainty, and all of us are confronted on multiple levels by our own powerlessness to control or fix things. The reality is that we are never powerful enough to control or fix things. But when stuff's running smoothly, when the world feels stable, and when everything is working the right way, we can forget this. Because in those moments, we feel powerful and in control. The technological snow globe of 21st century first world thinking and living gives us the illusion that we are little masters of the universe. But moments like this present coronavirus crisis pull the veil back on reality and we realize just how fragile all of human life, and ours included, really is. 
and how dependent we truly are on something to save us that we could never manufacture from within ourselves, but have to wait to receive from outside of us. This is what I find so interesting about the Galatians passage that was read earlier. In the first six verses of that passage, Paul encourages the Galatian Christians to pay attention to themselves. To closely examine what is going on in their own hearts that is fueling their own behavior. Even as you are restoring others who are caught in sin, Paul encourages, watch yourself because the same weakness that caused that person to break lives in you as well. Let their fall remind you of your need for God. And let that felt need drive you to his presence. Let it remind you to remain in him. Don't think too highly of yourself. Just as a widespread disease does not discriminate between persons, so everyone has been affected by sin. And so test your actions, Paul says. Sift them to see where your motivations are godly and where they are self-interested. Where you are driven by fear or fueled by faith. As I consider Paul's words, it makes more sense to me why Jesus places the priority on patience as the starting place of discipleship. Situations that require our patience force our self-reflection, our self-examination. Snack food, as I know very well, is a source of weight gain because I don't even have to be sure that I want it or need it in order to eat it. I can go to the cabinet, get a bag of chips, and mindlessly eat them just because I'm bored without even knowing whether I'm hungry or not. There's no weight involved and thus zero self-reflection. Rather, if I have to cook food, I have to invest energy, preparation, and time. If I'm going to invest that much in the creation of something, I better be sure that I want it and that I need it. The same is true of the spiritual life. When everything we want to do just works automatically, we tend to drift through life without truly even thinking about what we're doing, what we really want, why we want it, or whether that what we want is even good for us in the first place. But when adversity strikes, when stuff doesn't work, and we have to wait to get what we want, that pause forces us to slow down, to think, and to self-examine. This is why Christians throughout history have entered into the season of Lent. Lent is a 40-day season leading up to Easter in which Christians throughout history and across the world today have taken time, intentional time, to examine our hearts, to seek Jesus through practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, to repent, refocus, and reorient our lives. But as Ashley Matthews from Trinity Anglican in Atlanta reminds us, Lent is not about Lent. If Lent was just about Lent, it would be masochistic. Lent is about Easter. We are Easter people, and that is why we observe Lent. Because as we force ourselves to wait, to explode in celebration over the joy of the resurrection, as we contemplate our own mortality, weakness, and desperate need for the salvation Jesus came to bring us, as we practice patience through our worship and life together, as we do all of these things, a gracious, humble, and open space is created within us 
that makes us even more ready and delighted to receive and rejoice over the good news that has come to us through the gospel. The good news of salvation that we know because we've considered it patiently that we could never bring about on our own. I've been wondering this week if this is why it is that the God revealed to us in Jesus, the God that we see on all the pages of the scriptures and recorded in people's lives, is so weirdly inefficient. I mean, think about this. All throughout the scriptures, God seems to lead faithful people down winding and frankly weird roads. God tells an old man named Abraham in Genesis that he's going to have a bunch of kids who will become a great nation that God is going to use to bless all the nations of the world, world and earth, same thing. God gives Abraham and his wife Sarah one kid and then promptly asks Abraham to kill that kid as a sacrifice of worship. Then God spares this kid's life. Weird and inefficient. But God is there the whole time, moving his promises forward. And so indeed, Abraham's kids do become a great nation. But in the book of Exodus, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. How could God let this happen? And yet God moves to deliver them miraculously from slavery and promises to establish this newly freed people in a land of promise that will be all their own. Except it takes this newly freed nation of people 40 years to get to that land. It's 425 miles as the crow flies from modern-day Cairo to modern-day Jerusalem. Land travel by this route requires 506 miles and would take you just over seven hours to drive that distance in a car. A slow walking pace should allow a well-provisioned person to cover this distance in 50 days or the equivalent of a month and a half. Given all of that, how in the world is it even possible to spend 40 years wandering in that amount of space? Weird and inconvenient and inefficient. And yet God was present, raining magical bread from the sky, sluicing water out of desert rocks, providing and moving his promises forward on behalf of his people. When the nation of Israel entered the promised land and established their nation, they eventually fell into patterns of sin and idolatry, worshiping other gods and failing to care for the most vulnerable in their midst. God allowed them to be captured and taken into exile. And eventually some of them were allowed to return and God promised that one day he would send them a Messiah, a Savior, who would forgive their sin and restore their nation to its created purpose to bless all nations. And yet when God finally sent that Messiah and Savior in the person of Jesus, he didn't send a decorated and accomplished military general. He sent a baby. A baby who had to be nursed by his mama, taught by school teachers, apprenticed in a trade by his daddy. In Christ, salvation had to grow up, to go through puberty, to live for 33 years before the cross. Weird, really, really weird, and really, really inefficient. And yet God was present, and his promises kept moving forward. And after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples for 50 days and then ascended into heaven. He promised to return, and his disciples believed his return would happen during their lifetime. Then, when they started dying and Jesus hadn't come back yet, they realized they needed to raise up leaders to keep the faith moving forward from generation to generation as all Christians waited for Jesus to finally come back and fully fulfill his promises. 
And so from day one, followers of Jesus and indeed all the people of God have always been waiting people. We have been given great promises in Christ that have not been fully fulfilled yet. And to live in this place of not yet fully fulfilled hope and waiting is hard. It requires us to be patient. But if we allow the pain and difficulty of our experience to push us forward towards Christ, to increase our dependence upon him, we will find great peace, great provision, and great joy as we remain in him. This past Friday morning, I was feeling a lot of anxiety about what decision to make in terms of worship services for our church. And I was sitting on our bed brooding and my beautiful three-year-old daughter runs into the room in her PJs, waving her princess wand and singing. I turned to Savannah and said, well, Amy's clearly not worried about the coronavirus. <laughs> Amy's in a stage of life where she is utterly dependent on Savannah and I for her livelihood. She needs us to help get her dressed, to feed her, to help regulate her emotions. And yet, paradoxically, because she is dependent, she is not anxious. As long as mommy and daddy are there, her world has order and nothing else matters. It's actually me in my independence in the moments when I think I have to make a huge decision on my own that I feel anxiety. Americans think independence will bring us peace, but we are wrong. Christians know the truth. It is dependence that brings peace. Dependence in the right person. Dependence on Jesus. Do we believe this morning that we absolutely need Christ to have peace, to find direction, to provide for us? Do we believe that there is no fruitful path through this life other than the one Jesus reveals to us as we follow him step by step? Are we willing to persevere in saying yes to Christ's invitation and command to remain in him and to wait on the Lord, even and especially when the world is falling apart around us, when we can't see the end of the road ahead and when we can't tell if God's really at work? The Apostle Paul concludes our Galatians passage with a beautiful instruction. A man reaps what he sows, Paul says. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Brothers and sisters, when we worship independence, when we run to our own wisdom and unthinkingly gratify whatever desire comes into our minds or hearts, when we trust in our own strength or follow our own self-leadership, we sow to the flesh. We make an investment in ourselves. And the fruit of this investment, Paul tells us, is destruction. And, and I don't know if that's really that hard of a word because I think we, we actually know that already. I think we've experienced it. 
I mean, think about the times when you've taken responsibility to save the world on your own shoulders. How'd that go? When we try to pick up a burden like that we were never made to carry, it crushes us with anxiety to the point that we feel we will be destroyed, just as Paul promised. When we say yes to sin, it warps our minds and our hearts and steals from us and robs us of life. But when, in contrast, our knowledge of all that is inside of us or all that's coming at us from the world around us that might destroy us, when all that stuff spurs us to run towards Jesus, to throw ourselves on his grace and to bring our sins and failures to the foot of the cross, to pray and ask for his mercy, his healing, and his promises to come in full, when we depend on Jesus and invest in him, we will reap the fruit of eternal life. Freedom from anxiety, peace, hope, spiritual comfort, and joy. And so Paul instructs, keep depending on Jesus. Keep investing towards Christ. Persevere in this work because if you keep going and don't give up, you will reap a harvest at the proper time. I had a chance a few months ago to speak with a bishop in our denomination who's currently planting churches on college campuses and in urban cores across the American Southwest. This past year, his diocese planted more churches than any other diocese in the nation with fewer resources than most other dioceses. And as I was talking to him, I was asking, how is this possible? And he said one simple phrase that has really stuck with me. He said, we are finding that our church planters will be successful if they just persevere. Do you believe that you'll make it in life if you just persevere in your work of sowing to the Spirit by remaining in Jesus? I deeply believe, especially right now, that Jesus wants us to be absolutely convinced of this. I believe this is what Jesus would recommend as a simple life strategy to implement in any and every situation. When everything's going well for you and everything feels simple and happiness comes easy, remain in Jesus. When God feels weird and inefficient and you can't feel him and don't know if he's at work, remain in Jesus. When the world feels like it's falling down all around you and you don't know where to turn or whether you'll even make it, remain in Jesus. Persevere in this remaining. Cultivate your dependence on Christ. Keep chasing centeredness in him and mindful trust in his promises over and above the feelings caused by your present circumstances. Keep doing that for years. When you look back on your life, I think you'll see that the Holy Spirit has been at work cultivating patience in your soul. The world needs more people like this. More people have been formed like this. Because patient people who remain in Jesus will not be reactionary, will be intentional. We won't be self-absorbed, we'll be attentive to others. We won't be confusing and erratic, we'll be focused. We won't be raising the anxiety temperature in every room or relationship we enter. We'll bring the peace of Jesus with us to other people and places. I want to close with this. In preaching team this week, we asked the question, why is it that people who check into hospitals are called patients? 
Turns out that the word patient originally meant one who suffers. The doorway to allowing God to cultivate the fruit of the spirit of patience in our hearts comes from recognizing that in this world, we are all patients. We are all suffering from a disease that we cannot cure by our own skill or strength. But because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, we are all patients in the wonderfully equipped hospital of God. Jesus has the medicine we need for our suffering. He has the help we need for our hurt, the hope we need for our lives. If we will trust ourselves to his care and leadership and persevere in our surrender and trusting obedience, he will lead us through. And in the meantime, he will use us to add stability and peace to the world around us. So Mission Cincinnati, whatever the circumstances, remain in Jesus and persevere in your dependence on him. Amen. Amen.